0: You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message from Senior Pastor Robin McMillan. The first two cardinals of the winter, and they were bright red. Um... Patterns in the interstate retaining concrete wall. Dr. Ashcraft. Conversations with Steve Wilber. Little pine tree, two inches tall, poking up by the sidewalk. The sliver of the moon hanging in an ebony sky. The invisibility of the wind. Number 118, Ron Rivera. <laughs> These are things I'm thankful for. I've realized um <clears throat> To find the big things, you have to be thankful for the small things. And um, so I'm going to continue. Uh, I'm following my theme of thanksgiving in the uh, narrative of the birth of Jesus this morning. And if you get on our website, queencity.church, and go under media, you can find the first two messages. And I've been preaching a long time. I would say... Those are two of the ten most important things I've ever spoken on, and it's the same message twice. I actually did that. I don't know. How many of you were here last two weeks? Yeah. Okay. Well, good. That's pretty good. Um, because I think this is so important. It's so foundational, and really, my prayer. Actually, I want to pray several things right now. The first thing I pray, Lord, words on the page. The spoken message, Lord, um, when it's all said and done, those things need to transition or translate into your presence, touching people's lives so they know how you feel about them. Or they're just words on the page and another message. Lord, I don't know how to make people feel how you feel about them, but I'm asking that, that you really would do that this morning. And, Lord, I'm praying that you would imprint in the DNA of Queen City Church um, this consistent um, pursuing of finding things to be grateful for. That it would be in the DNA of our church, Lord. That it would transform uh, our lives, uh, communities, everywhere we go, Lord. And I'm just praying, oh Lord, that we would find that simple key to your presence, which is in everything, give thanks. But this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning each one of us. Amen. Okay. Amen. Um, we've looked at the essence of the fall in the garden a couple of times over the last couple of weeks. And um, we've considered that ingratitude, not being grateful, is the clearest expression of what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. And it's the clearest expression of what it means to depart from the Lord, is to no longer be thankful. Um, I've talked uh, several times, I'll mention it again, a quote from Ann Voskamp's book, One Thousand Gifts. By the way, I mentioned these a couple things earlier. How'd you like that one about the Cardinals? Yeah, I'm on 119 on my way to 1,000. I had a bad week last week. Started off with a bang, and then uh, my gratefulness quotient diminished a little bit, but... But see, that's the, whole, that's the whole point. That's the whole point. It's not automatic. It's, um, did you hear that ice in my coffee jingle? Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is basically a charade. No, it's not. It's really. No, let me tell you. Actually, I failed to mention um, a very important uh, number 105, diet decaf. Uh, Diet Coca-Cola decaf. So anyway, yeah, I got a few things wrong with me, but it's all right. Um, So Ann Voskamp has written this book, 1,000 Gifts. Dare to live fully right where you are. And she makes some remarkable observations. And this is a quote from her book. Ultimately, in his essence, Satan is an ingrate. And he sinks his venom into the heart of Eden, the paradise of God. Satan's sin becomes the first sin of all humanity, the sin of ingratitude. Adam and Eve are simply painfully ungrateful for what God gave. Isn't that the catalyst of all sins? You could argue some of that theologically, but I think basically that's eye-opening. That really is important. So being ungrateful is a huge enemy of ours. And I found, uh, I found a pattern for how to live the best kind of life. You could call it a formula. Calling it a formula might be a little bit too much, but it's sort of a one, two, three idea here. And, um, number one to be find the gift. see that's what I'm doing. I'm finding the gifts, actually, Don and I were driving down the highway really early in the morning the other day, and up in this cow pasture was this white horse, and the sun was just hitting it broadside and it was just it was so beautiful and another one too and this is this is remarkable. I've lived here fifty years. And South Boulevard, I don't know how many thousands of times I've gone sat down South Boulevard. And as I was coming down near all those car dealerships, I looked up, and it was late in the afternoon, and the sun was low in the sky. And I noticed this American flag, a huge, you know, the huge stars and stripes. And the wind, you remember the afternoon when the wind was really whipping, and that flag was just billowing in the wind. And the sun was coming behind it. And it was just beautiful. And I thought, why have I never noticed that? And the most bizarre thing is, as I went down there, there were six more. Six more of these big American flags, all of them with the sun on it. And it just struck me, how many times do we miss these gifts that God wants to give us? We just walk right by them. Never notice. And the key is, and this is just the great message is when Simeon Simeon is this man in the, in the, between the old and new testaments and God had promised him that he would see the Messiah before he died. And he could identify in a baby, the savior of the world. And so, and he found this, he'd been looking, say looking, he'd been looking. If you're not looking, you're not going to see things that are right in front of you. He'd been looking. He'd been waiting. So he finds in a baby, in the small, he finds the huge, the Savior, the, the Christ, the Messiah, the one promised down through the ages in over 400 different passages of Scripture, some say. So if, if you want to find the big, you have to find the small. It's this humility process. So find the gift, part one, give thanks. What's the first part of give thanks? Give. You receive something, you give in return. You find the gift. That's the favor. That's the grace. It always starts with grace. You find the gift, you give thanks, and then you receive. You receive joy or you receive more of God's presence. Because we enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. And there's a practical thing here that the more grateful we are. Now, I don't mean you're just going, thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, like some kind of a knucklehead parrot or something. But no, you're really thinking about this. You're really being thankful. You're identifying the gift. You will receive joy or you'll receive an increase or you'll receive more of God's presence, and the ultimate goal, I don't know if goal is the right word, but the ultimate chemical reaction, what this produces is generous people. You respond in generosity. So we're going to see some of this. One of my favorite Christmas stories we're going to read is, When the wise men find the one born king of the Jews in Matthew chapter 2. So we've got this on the overhead, and Um, it's 12 verses is pretty, pretty good amount of scripture, but I'm going to read all of this and you can read along. And then we'll just, I wanted to talk about some of it and see what we could get from it. But, um, verse one, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the King behold, wise men from the East came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. That's something interesting. Notice that Herod identified this king as the Messiah and see in, in the Hebrew culture, they had been waiting for generations for the Messiah. And we're going to see, you know, this thing about the way Herod responds is so, uh, is so awful. Um, but he knew who these wise men were talking about. So when Herod heard this, he was troubled all Jerusalem with him when he gathered All the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. This is Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. till it came and stood over where the young child was when they saw the star they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy and when they had come into the house they saw the young child with Mary's mother and fell down and worshiped him and when they had opened their treasures that's great when they had opened their treasures They presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country um, another way. And so when I've read through this and I've thought through it, I had a bunch of questions I wanted to answer myself, and I think it would be good to answer them here. Like, who were the magi? How did they know that the king of Jews would be born? Isn't that a good question? How many wise men were there? We we get a lot of our doctrine about the wise men from nativity scenes, <laughs> and there's very little accurate about a nativity scene. Quite frankly, the Bible tells us Jesus was in a house when they came. He was probably about two years old. They weren't with the shepherds. Um, hey, God bless nativity scenes, but. Uh, there's some pretty serious inaccuracies built into that thing. <laughs> how many wise men? And I think they've got three names for these guys: Yar, uh Arnold, and Franklin. I think I don't know, but they're, they don't. Nobody knows, you know. And I think they come up with three because of the three gifts and all this sort of stuff. But who knows? So, how many wise men? I think that's a great thing to look into. What was this traveling star? You ever thought about that? What was that? Makes no sense. Um, and then the Old Testament predictions of the coming Messiah. I think that's a good thing to think about briefly anyway. So who were the magi? And that means wise men, spiritual advisors, or, or priests. And how did they know that the king of the Jews would be born? So I did a lot of... A lot of research, and I can't... So, for integrity's sake, all of these words aren't my words. You know, it's careful that you don't plagiarize, but I'm not sure what came from where anymore. But anyway, here's what I've discovered through other sources. The Magi from the East who came to see Jesus were of completely different sort. Not only were they true Magi, but they surely had been strongly influenced by Judaism Quite possibly, even by some of the prophetic writings, especially that of Daniel, it's probable they were descendants of those who were taught by Daniel, who was called the chief magi or chief wise man. You find that in the book of Daniel and was the most revered wise man in ancient Babylon at one point. Um, Daniel was a celebrated Jewish scholar and a master interpreter of dreams who was exiled to Babylon after the destruction of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. He's famous for successfully interpreting the proverbial writing on the wall. How many of you know that? Many, many tickle, you, farce, and you've been weighing the balances and found wanting, which, uh, a king's knees could be heard knocking together because of that supernatural experience. And he miraculously survived. The lion's den. So, um, now when the Magi arrived in Jerusalem, they began saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? And so apparently some kind of star, or we'll talk about this a little bit more in a minute, um, conflagration of planets that lined up, got them at least to Jerusalem. But when they got there, they didn't know where the child was. So they began to ask, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Um, And the word saying, they began saying, is a present participle, which means they kept on saying, which suggests that they went all around the city questioning whoever they met because as foreigners they knew of this monumental birth They apparently assumed that anyone in Judea and certainly in Jerusalem would know of this special baby's whereabouts. They must have been more than a little shocked to discover that no one seemed to know what they were talking about. During that time, there was widespread expectation. So we're talking about how did they know that the king of the Jews would even be born? During that particular period of world history, there was a widespread expectation of the coming of a great king, Or a great deliverer. The Roman historian Suetonius, speaking of the time around the birth of Christ, wrote, There had spread all over the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. So, you have that one statement from Roman history. Another Roman historian, Tacitus, wrote, that there was, quote, a firm persuasion that at this very time the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire a universal empire. And then we have the Jewish historian Josephus who reports in his Jewish wars that about the time of Christ's birth, the Jews believed that one for their country would soon become ruler of the the habitable earth, and so these wise men somehow picked up on this belief that was fueled by sort of a common belief in history during that time, we find in both Rome and in in Israel, Um, and through their connection with Daniel, some of Daniel's writings and having been trained um, as spiritual priest to... Um, somehow believed that this, this was coming. So they were watching for the birth and they understood that it would be um, kicked off by some uh, something in the stars, something in the sky. So it's interesting. A lot of this is conjecture, but nevertheless, I think it, it, it points us in the right direction as to why they were thinking this way. Okay, now here's another question. How many wise men? Legend but not the Bible assumes that there were three wise men, most likely because they're connected to the three gifts they gave to the newborn king, which were myrrh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And because of the popular nativity scenes we see displayed during the celebration of Christmas, there were most certainly more than three, and here's some of the reasoning, because they came from a long distance, they were carrying very valuable treasures to honor the new king, and they needed an entourage for protection. There was probably a large delegation because of the effect they had on King Herod in all Jerusalem because it told us when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Um, so... I think there was a big entourage that suddenly shows up in, in Jerusalem uh, and they began to ask all over, where is this one born king of the Jews? Which would certainly cause the current king a certain amount of discomfort. Okay, now, what was this star? My note was, what was the traveling star? Okay, over the years, there have been four main theories. Number one, Halley's Comet. Some people think it must, could have been Haley's Comet. Unfortunately, the nearest appearance was in 11 BC, which is simply too early for the birth of Christ. Number two, a supernova. This is an exploding star that suddenly fills the sky with light and a brilliant, blinding flash of light. These are unpredictable and very rare, and there's no record in any astronomical records of a supernova in the years surrounding the birth of Christ. Number three, conjunction of planets. This is probably the most popular theory. One version suggests that in 7 BC, Jupiter, Mars, and Saturn came together in a very rare conjunction that only occurs once every 125 years. Another possibility is a conjunction of Jupiter and Venus in 2 BC. The conjunction theory has this to favor it. It would explain why the Magi saw it and the people of Israel didn't because their distance, their location, their relative locations. Conjunctions don't attract the attention of people who don't normally watch the skies. They aren't highly visible phenomena like comets or supernovas or meteor showers. But to anyone who watched the stars regularly, a triangular conjunction like the one in 7 BC would certainly attract extraordinary attention. Anybody asleep yet? Okay. Number four, and this is my favorite one, and this is the one I, I actually think two of these things happen. A supernatural light. This theory suggests that the star was not a natural phenomenon at all, but rather was a light placed by God in the atmosphere, especially for the Magi to see. Those who hold this view, and this is from Christianity.com, which I myself lean to, which is a quote, not what I'm saying, but I happen to also. Those who hold this view point to the Shekinah glory of God in the Old Testament at certain points in history, God revealed himself as a bright light in order to guide his people. For 40 years, he did that in the wilderness, cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. There are a number of times where this light would show up. Um, but in this context, we might think of the pillar of fire with which I meant God led Israel in the wilderness. And then the transformation of Jesus in the Gospels, which was startling and light-oriented. Here's what I'm thinking. I think there was a conjunction of planets that got the wise men out of the Orient. And then there was a supernatural phenomenon that actually says traveled that got them to the very birthplace of Jesus. Because when you study the direction that sort of traveling star took, it's contrary to the way stars move in the heavens. It's actually the very opposite direction. Nevertheless, there was some supernatural stuff going on, okay? And it got these magi to the birthplace of Jesus. Well, the home of Jesus two years after he was born, I think. Okay. Something I think is important is the Old Testament predictions of the coming Messiah. And here's... Um, something we need to take into account if the wise men had not heard from the priest the Micah 5 verse 2 which specifically identified the geographical location of where the child would be they would never have been in the right vicinity to even see that supernatural light that apparently appeared and hovered right over the place where where Jesus was so so important the the Old Testament prophecies now J. Barton Payne, how many of you know J. Barton? I don't either, but I found that he listed 574 verses in the Old Testament that had direct personal messianic foretellings. That's pretty incredible. He found 127 personal messianic predictions involving some 348 verses that had any or all types of real and typological prophecies of Jesus first or second coming. This number was exceeded only by Alfred Edersheim, who was an extraordinary student of the scripture, who noted that in some 558 rabbinic writings in pre-Christian times, there were some 456 separate Old Testament or Tanakh passages used to refer to the Messiah or the Messianic times. In his own book, The Messiah in the Old Testament, oh, in my own book, which was somebody else's own book that I quoted here, this particular person wrote The Messiah in the Old Testament. He was able to identify 65 direct predictions of Jesus coming in the Old Testament. Few will dispute that there are at least six direct messianic predictions in the Pentateuch, first section of the Old Testament scriptures. So, I just felt like addressing all those different issues because I think that that's interesting, but let's go on. So what can we gain from this whole narrative? Well, when you're serious about seeking the Lord, often the Lord's going to do special things to help you, even providing divine guidance. And we look at that, the configuration of planets or the stars and a supernatural light. Um, They found the right verse of scripture. The wise men at the most opportune time to locate the actual birthplace of the Messiah. If you are serious, if you really mean business to find the Lord in a profound way, he is going to help you get there. Everybody thinks that's good, don't they? If You're serious about seeking the Lord. I mean, even casual people, the mercy of God can do great things. But if you really are serious you want your life different. You want to know what God's like. He, he will, he'll help you. Um, consider the devotion, how much the wise men were willing to spend to find this newborn king. I mean, they traveled, I don't know, hundreds, maybe even thousands of miles through dangerous territory, carrying gifts and treasures they wanted to present to this newborn king. And I was reminded as I went through this, uh, Jesus' instruction about the value of perseverance, Matthew 7, very words of Jesus, ask and what will happen? It'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone, everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. So that's a direct promise. Now the verb tense is there in there is ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking and you'll find knock. Keep on knocking, it will be open to you. And then Jesus promises, for everyone, everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be open. Here's the idea. If you haven't yet found satisfaction in your life as a Christian, don't stop. Keep seeking, keep knocking, keep asking. Look! Look what these wise men were willing to do. In their pursuit. You know, I think in our sort of uh, our, gen- our generation, everything comes so easily for so many of us that we're not used to uh, really going after something. Um, fast food places. Now you don't even have to go in. You should drive up. How many of you drive up and still complain about how long it takes to get your food? That's, that's telling. It used to be you used to have to go shoot something, <laughs> take it home, cut it up, cook it, eat it. So, so many things in our society work against true spiritual life. See, all the media stuff with all the anger and all the outrage. Isn't there been enough outrage already? There has been. Gosh. But how much of that affects us? Man, I can listen to five minutes of some of that stuff. I'm ready to go chew nails, chew somebody out, go find out who's responsible. It's just not, it's not, it's not a good life. It's, it's, we are way too influenced in some ways by what goes on around us. Some, in, in some ways, we don't even recognize it the stuff that's infiltrated our souls, the hostility, the anger, the criticism, the frustration, all of those things. I've mentioned some of this before. After arriving in Jerusalem, the wise men heeded the ancient prophecies. When Herod demanded to know where the prophets foretold that the Messiah would be born, the scribes and priests pointed them to Micah 5 two. They told him it would be in Bethlehem. Um, this verse identifies Bethlehem as the birthplace, so the wise men go there. Now, in reading through this, did anyone, did it register with anyone who did not go there? No one else. You know, so they've been waiting on this Messiah. They have these hundreds of verses pointing to his birth And the only people really interested, even after they got confirmation for where the child was going to be born, nobody went but these foreigners. And Herod only wanted to know because he wanted to kill the child because he wanted to be king. And that to me is amazing. The absolute bankruptcy of King Herod, how how his own personal ambition could blind him from the reality of what was going on here. The one foretold for generations who had the capacity to touch the lives in some special way that will affect the entire world, Jew and Gentile alike, and he had come and they knew it and they understood it and they perceived it and they confirmed it and they had the scripture and nobody went. It's amazing. No one else goes. Not Herod, not the scribes, not the priest. And then Herod tries to figure out a way to find out. Now, now they believed all of this. You know, you think this is a little goofy, mystery, mystical, maybe not even true, but. Herod took it to heart. He wanted to know exactly when they first saw that star so he would know how old this child was, where that child was born because he was going to kill every child in that region to secure his throne. That's how seriously even Herod took all of this. And then there's another thing that I think is just wonderful, and it's the wise men's response to finding the baby Lord Jesus. And this is in the Passion Translation. And when they saw the star, so here they found this, they saw the star, they found the child. They were so ecstatic that they shouted and celebrated with unrestrained joy. When they came into the house and saw the young child with Mary, his mother, they were overcome, falling to the ground at his feet. They worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure boxes full of gifts, and presented him with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, that verse 10, which is the whole thing about rejoicing and getting excited and having joy, the Greek is hard to translate because it contains so many redundant words for joy in the one verse. It literally reads this way. They rejoiced with great joy exceedingly. And then here's the result, the generosity of the wise men, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. So the wise men present those gifts to the family, to Joseph, to Mary, in honor of the child. And shortly thereafter, actually, that night, if you read the, read the scriptures, it seems that very night an angel in a dream appears to Joseph and says, you need to move, you need to leave. The child's in danger because Herod wants to kill him. The angel actually told him, Herod wants to kill the child. And so the very next day they left and they went to Egypt. And so, you know, apparently Joseph and Mary, when they came to answer the census to have the child, they didn't have enough money to... Rent a place. I mean, they apparently were pretty broke. I mean, they were not wealthy people at all, and yet they could move instantly after this encounter with uh, with these with these wise men, and live anywhere from two to six years in Egypt until the angel again came in a dream to Joseph and said, "It's safe to go back because Herod's dead." How could they live six years in a foreign country? having virtually no money. They were given gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And the interesting thing is gold, everybody knows gold is valuable. They say the frankincense was more valuable. Now, I I read this. To me, it seems crazy or too far-fetched. Some people have estimated what they gave could have been worth a quarter million dollars. But an, ex- this was a lavish offering. These people were serious. They were so grateful that this generosity just just poured out of them. Um, the wise men valued finding this king. They found the gift. Let's say that together. They found the gift. They offered thanks. They received joy. That's what happened. That's that's the process. The wise men valued finding the new king of the Jews, the Christ child. They traveled a great distance. They left home not knowing where they were going, following some elusive astral guidance. They brought treasures to present to him. These guys were serious revelators. They risked being robbed or killed on the way. Their purpose was to worship him, show him gratitude. Then I've read these verses in the New Testament that, that really speak to me because I'm thinking, um, Lord, uh, show us the value of your son. Show us the value of the Lord Jesus. Paul would say, just in this sort of spontaneous praise he wrote in one of his letters, 2 Corinthians 9, 15, he just suddenly says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Or thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Paul had such a revelation of who Jesus was. Jesus had so touched Paul's life. Paul's life was transformed. Formed from a murderer, a legalist, a Pharisee, an arrogant, hostile hater in a moment in time by the supernatural encounter he had with the Lord Jesus. And to him, you could not even describe Jesus. He was unspeakable. There weren't enough words to say. There wasn't an accurate enough description to give of him. Paul had no words to describe the wonderful Lord Jesus. And here's how he described him. Thanks be unto God for his indescribable what? Gift. This just gift. I was reading, um, where's my wife? Donna, what what was that book I was telling you about? we were talking about this morning, about four in the morning as we were seeking God diligently with our whole hearts. (laughs) Dallas Willard's The The Divine Conspiracy. John Mark's been telling me I needed to read that. And so I've been looking, I've been reading it. And when Dallas Willard talks about Jesus, it makes me think, I don't know him that well. Because of the description Dallas Willard gives of Jesus and how when Jesus came and he talks about, he talks about when, um, uh, I guess it was might have been Mary Magdalene. The prostitute comes and just uh, comes to Simon's house and just dumps her love on Jesus. And Simon's thinking, oh, well, I thought this Jesus was a wise man. I thought he was a prophet. If he was a prophet, he wouldn't let this woman touch him and certainly not kiss his feet and certainly not pour oil on his head. And so, and, so he, and so Simon, Dallas Willard concludes, Simon thought, well, I guess Jesus just doesn't know who this woman is. But then as, as the narrative goes, Jesus knew exactly who she was, and he knew exactly what Simon, who owned the house, who was this Pharisee, thought too. And so he says to Simon, when I came, you didn't even give me the customary kiss, but she has not ceased from kissing my feet since I've arrived. You did not um, offer me uh, oil for for my hair, which was the customary greeting of someone you respected. She has not ceased from pouring oil on me since i came and then he said to him there was a there was a rich man and one man he loaned $50,000 and another another person he loaned $5 and neither one could pay the debt and the man forgave both debts because neither one could pay then he says to simon who loved the most the man that forgave the debt. Who loved him the most? And Simon said, "The one that was forgiven the most." And Jesus said, "This is this is her. This is who it is." And see, that's what brought me to that question, or, or even that prayer this morning. That woman knew. She knew. She knew the love of God she was transformed she wasn't still being a prostitute she wasn't still in 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 immorality she had made a shift out of that life although that was her reputation obviously but something she she knew Jesus loved her. There's something that happened and she knew Jesus loved her and it touched her so deeply. She, she behaved that way. When Simon, who had all the theology and who had the position, who had the title and who had the prestige, didn't, he just didn't, he didn't relate that way. And so that's what my prayer was today. Lord, touch people's hearts. You know, we got the Bible, but it's not enough. We got the words on the page, but it's not enough. We got preaching, but it's not enough. We got to have you. We can tell people, so what? We can tell them we should. Jesus loves you. God wants you to be part of his family, all of that. But um, one last thing here. It's it's out of the fourth chapter of the gospel of John. You know, it seems to me that the the people who are affected the most by the gospel and by Jesus are the people who know they're the messed up. They can't hedge their bet. They can't hide behind whatever veneers they have. They just know. I can't even say what I want to say, but I would have to hear from my wife later, but we're messed up. I mean, we can't hide it. They're the ones that seem to be touched the most. So we have this woman who was a prostitute. Then we have Jesus talking to the woman at the well who's been married four or five times. The Bible says in the woman or the man he was with, he was not. she was not married to then. And there's Jesus talking to her, loving her. And, and it's about water, and at the well, and the woman's come to get the water, and Jesus is thirsty, he wants water, so he says to her, give me water. And, and then he says, this whole thing comes up, and it comes down to this. Jesus says to this woman, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus even calls himself the gift of God. The, the wise men were looking for the gift. The wise men found that gift. The wise men offered thanks. In return, they were flooded with joy. They released that generosity. Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God, who it is, you would have asked, he would have given. Find the gift. Ask, he will give and you will have. God comes as a gift. Here's the formula. Look for the gift. Give thanks, receive presence, receive joy, receive increase, and it will create in you a life of generosity. I want to repeat this one more time. And that, that's, this is why I need this message. I need this message. I, I preached it three times. If none of you were here, I would come anyway, and this is what I would say. And I would listen myself. And I'm I'm writing these things down. I'm thankful for my blue jeans. That my Aunt Catherine prayed for me in college when I wasn't serving the Lord. That Bob Jones was my friend. Country-style steak, rice, and gravy. The I-77 express lane. The orange colors that appeared on my bathroom wall as the sun rose the other day. These are gifts, gifts. They're gifts. They're gifts. They're gifts. They're gifts. They're gifts. They're gifts. And if we don't learn how to acknowledge these little gifts... We don't ever fully engage the gift, the huge one. Yeah, Ann Voskamp's book, the second part is, After the 1,000 Gifts, dare to live fully right where you are. And the thing that happens is you've begun to realize, even with the terrible things in your life, we're supposed to give thanks for those. And I think, no, we can't do that. Well, it says to. Why would we do it? Because Thanksgiving will transform tragedy into triumph. Thanksgiving will transform bitterness, heartache, pain into peace and presence and glory. Even in the pain, even in the negative, even in the things we hate, even in the things we don't want to talk about, if we can give thanks right there, there's a transformative power. There's an opportunity to grow beyond. That's the secret of the cross. You see, hidden in our heartache and our sorrows, the capacity to become something we could never become before. Hidden in the death and the tragedy of Jesus is a salvation of everyone who believes. It's in the tragedy. He gave thanks before he died, knowing he was going to die, breaking the bread, knowing the broken bread, spoke of his agony. He gave thanks for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame. He was He had such a capacity to be grateful. I mean, when he had the loaves and the fishes feed 5,000 families, the disciples would actually describe that geographical location uh, uh, not as Cana Barnea or not as Galilee, hills of Galilee. They would say that was the place where the Lord gave thanks. Why would you describe a geographical location as a place where the Lord gave thanks? Because he had so developed the capacity to be grateful that it permeated his entire life and it took him through the most awful human tragedy into the most glorious victory ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Have mercy on us. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.